Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. That's at Patreon.com/slash I Love That Movie, all one word. <laughs> and if you do join us there, you get a weekly bonus episode of everything else I'm watching. So people ask me about TV shows. You know, we talk about. Uh, classic film a lot on this podcast so what about current movies um i talk about it all there on the patreon so uh i do want to take a quick moment to thank my top patrons they are chris balga jeff woodman philip barker and josh johnson a new a new addition who's been on the show many times and is a close personal friend of mine and of course uh michael cross thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on um, and if you like what you hear today, please subscribe and rate this show. It does help new listeners find us. Uh, I got a new guest with me here today. I've got Nick Bell. Say hi, Nick. Hello. Uh, it's good to be here, Lisa. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. So we just chatted um, a, couple, a couple weeks ago about E.T. And we also chatted about um, the Wrath of Khan over on Cody's podcast. Um, uh, yes. Yes, yeah. that podcast is called Video Store Rejects. I've mm -hmm. been a um, frequent contributor in the past year, mainly as a guest, but I believe I'm going to be a more uh, permanent part of their show. So uh, you can catch me on there. Yes, and Nick, it's that, that show is great. You've got such a great crew on there, and I'm happy to hear that you're getting promoted to co-host. That's, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I... Yeah. Um, so, Nick, I always let our guests choose the movie. So what movie did you choose to talk about today? Okay, well, today I have chosen L.A. Confidential, released in 1997, directed by Curtis Hansen, screenplay by Brian Heglin and Mr. Hansen, and based on the book by James Elroy, part of Mr. Elroy's L.A. Quartet. Great. Um, so... Yes, L.A. Confidential, 1997. Um, I've watched this a couple of times. Um, go ahead. It's like you're about Actually, to say something. It's on my list of, I guess, top ten all-time favorite movies. Um, it's, you know, what what gets? Um, sh should I go into the actual discussion of the movie, or should I throw out some more vital statistics? Um, let me read the summary real quick, and then we can totally jump into some statistics, because I've got some quick facts as well. Okay, um, excellent. Oh, and you know what I kind of glossed over? I don't know if you wanted to 
introduce yourself a little bit as well. I know you talked about the podcast, but if you wanted to tell the listeners a little bit about you. Well, okay. Uh, my name's Nick Bell. You can find me at on Twitter at Mr. Afro one, the, uh, the number one. And mainly on there, I just uh, talk about whatever comes to my mind, you know, usually pop culture. Um, I also, like I said previously, I also have a, um, I'm also part of a podcast called Video Store Rejects, uh, uh, done with my friend uh, Chris and Cody. Chris, I've known uh, since I lived in East Texas. I am currently based in the DFW area. In, in my normal life, quote unquote, I'm a, a special education teacher. Oh, that's great. Yes. Well, glad to have you. Um, and I want to let our listeners know before we get started, um, too much further into this, that there will not be a spoiler wall. I'm I'm just terrible at like remembering to say spoiler wall. <laughs> so uh, I would recommend pausing this and going and watching the movie if you're worried about spoilers. And then you can come back in and jump in. But here's the summary either way. Also uh, on the same oh, on that same token, it's yeah, spoilers for a 23-year-old movie if you have not <laughs> And no shade if you haven't seen it yet, but that's true. You've had time. Yes. <laughs> uh, here's the, a quick synopsis uh, before we jump in. Three policemen, each with his own motives and obsessions, tackle the corruption surrounding an unsolved murder at a downtown Los Angeles coffee shop in the early 1950s. Detective Lieutenant Exley, the son of a murder detective, is out to avenge his father's killing. The ex-partner of Officer White, implicated in the scandal uh, rooted out by Exley, was one of the victims. Sergeant Vicenz feeds classified information to a tabloid magnet, um, unnamed here, but played by Danny DeVito. <laughs> oh, uh, his character's name Sid Hudgens. Sid Hudgens. Thank you. Yes. Um, but yeah, essentially there are three main characters, three or four, and they're all tied up in this, you know, kind of spicy mystery, uh, murder mystery, sort of a, a, a neo-noir film, I guess. I mean, yes. it's, it's, an, it's, you know, in the nineties, but done in that classic noir style. Yes, it is very much a, um, modern neo-noir uh, film and that's one of the things that really draws me into it and um, one of the things I another thing I love about the movie is uh, I am a big stickler of uh, plots that are essentially deconstructions of 1950s nostalgia um, mm. yeah see I grew up in the 80s and back then everybody's like oh Elvis oh leave it to beaver it was such an innocent time it's like mm. yeah yeah if um, you happen to be a woman or black it kind of sucked <laughs> Yeah, so, like I like seeing movies that kind of show the 50s as they actually were. And mm -hmm. this is a uh, very L.A. Confidential is a very big window into that. Um, I believe the original author, James Elroy, he he grew up around a lot of corruption, especially in the. Uh, LA Police Department, and that's what uh, led him to write uh, write those books. Oh, yeah, some of which I'll get into in a little bit, but it it ties into the motivations of Ed Exley and by Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe, respectively. Okay, yeah, I um 
I'm with you there. And I think the noir genre is kind of a good genre for that, really, because, I mean, it's always about the sort of dark, pulpier, um, you know, criminal element. And, and along with that usually does come talking about corruption and, um, you know, pulls in a lot of different other social issues of the time. So, you know, especially this one being done in the 90s, I feel like it even more so leaned into some of that. And based mm-hmm. on that book, like you mentioned, but yeah, I, I, I really like this genre a lot. So a lot of the films that I like that are noir films. Um, this was directed by Curtis Hansen, yes. um, who I, we did another uh, episode on one of his movies. I believe we did in her shoes. So I think if you go back and look in the archives, you can find another one of his films, but anyway, oh, nice. you, yeah, usually around here, I talk about um, a couple of quick facts. I know you had a few. So why don't you start us off? You, you had a couple statistics you wanted to share. Well, I this actually uh, won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. I mean, usually I, I said on my other show that I don't really hold the Academy Awards in a very high light. But there are some awards that are worth talking about. And Best, best Screenplay, either original or adapted, is... I, I think one of them. And this also won a Best Actress Award for um, uh, Kim Basinger, who played, um, she played a call girl named uh, Lynn, um, Lynn Bracken. Um, mm. and yeah, she's, she did a good job. Yeah, and she's dolled up to look like uh, 50s actress Veronica Lake. That's right, Veronica Lake. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good award. You know, writing, I mean, that, that does seem like one of the more important uh, aspects of from the award show. So I'm with you there. Yeah, it's also funny because I'm actually holding, um, I, I found this at a half price book about a month ago. Uh, a copy of the shooting script for, for this movie. And, oh, really? No, yeah, it was less than five bucks. I, I had to get it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good deal. <laughs> um, another fact that I had was that at the time the film takes place, no building in Los Angeles was allowed to be taller than City Hall. So the cameras were all placed at certain points so that any building taller than City Hall would not be seen. Ah, trying to get some um, period accuracy there. Yeah. And then I yeah. also had that... Uh, Guy Pierce did not like Ed Exley when he first read the screenplay because he felt the character was overly self-righteous, which I could totally see. I mean, I would argue that neither he nor, you know, well, of the three main characters, Bud White, Jack uh, Vincent, I'm, I'm just always going to have her just saying that, um, and Ed yeah. Exley, between the three of them, I, I feel like they're not supposed to be super good guys. They're kind of like flawed main characters which is perfect for a noir film well um i would i kind of disagree with mr pierce because i yeah all of them are uh very flawed like uh jack vincennes he basically uh i would say he was even more of a glory hound than ed exley because he shills for uh basically the 50s equivalent of the national Enquirer. yeah and it's like I don't know. It kind of reminds me of like the way that police officers are seen if they were on the show cops, like all the other Mm. police officers would be like, yikes, that's embarrassing. Like, I feel like Jack was kind of like that because it's like, 
you know, he's engaging in this celebrity aspect of being a detective, which is kind well, of- he's also based on Jack Webb. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jack Webb is he was also an LAPD cop, but he was also the creator of the radio show and later TV. It was Dragnet. Oh, okay, it was based on Dragnet. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Yes. Yeah, so Jack Vincennes is based on that character. In fact, there are several times when, um, you know, he meets up with his fellow cops and they just, and they tease him, like say, go get the facts, just the facts, which was <laughs> a, you know, on Dragnet. Got it. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, lastly, I had that Russell Crowe initially turned down the film as he did not believe he could convincingly play a tough character, which is hard to believe. (laughs) Even Russell Crowe's career, I'm like, what? (laughs) Must have been earlier on. Yeah, Russell Crowe is, you know, actually, knowing what we now know about Russell Crowe, I would say Bud White is a little bit more true to life than... um, than he thought (laughs) yeah than he would hope even (laughs) but yeah yeah i I also read that he based his performance on this uh from on that of sterling hayden in uh stanley kubrick's the killing because it's kind of like that one oh yeah it's it's really good um but it's basically you know portraying like the manliness that came out of world war ii or like i guess the machismo um from you know having gone through that and yeah. you can kind of see that in his performance. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I have a bonus one because I found so many interesting facts about this movie. I just thought, okay, I've got one more. Lana Turner's private life uh, posed a serious problem for studios. Her eight marriages were one element, and another element was Johnny Stampinato. Uh, the film is set five years before Turner's most notorious incident during which Stampinato attacked her. Turner's daughter stabbed and killed him in defense of her mother the trial and acquittal provide a great deal of gossip for years to come yeah and it's it's almost a small part because yeah johnny is well he's a minor but significant character in um yeah and there's also a scene later on where ed exley you know tries to um tries to work her you know and he mistakes her for one of the um uh for one of the call girls who are made to look made up to look like movie stars and uh, he says so and he says a hooker cut to look like lana turner is just a hooker she looks like she just looks like lana turner and vincennes turns to him and says she is lana turner (laughs) yeah it's a case of mistaken identity but also feels like a weird meta commentary on hollywood in general yeah also another thing um the whole the plot point about um uh prostitutes uh, call girls made up to look like movie stars that was an actual thing yeah yeah i saw that i read that in there that there's lots of rumors about that books written about it and even some celebrities that say that they engaged or in it or knew about it well i mean there's obvious one of the uh, most famous um examples i can think of off the top of my head is charlie sheen how Mm. he was a uh, frequent client of heidi fleiss back in the day Mm. interesting well it makes sense right i mean it's like the world's oldest profession uh sex work is not new 
and it would make not. sense to have that alongside of what everything else that was going on at the time and it just kind of adds a layer to the movie of like you know on the outside there's a picture that's painted of what hollywood is like but then there's a real a real different side to it and plus in a lot of noir films it it tends to center on a you know, kind of a seedy cop or a cop that, or a detective that's dealing with corruption and, um, you know, tough instances and things like that. And they usually are tied to a woman who's either a femme fatale or, or she has a sex worker background. So it kind of, you know, goes right into, again, the, the genre that this film is set in. Yeah. And that's actually where Lynn Bracken's character comes in. Like she's, mm -hmm. she's not quite the femme fatale, but um, she is part of that bigger picture and doesn't even know about it um, there, which also leads to another character, Pierre Patchett um, played by David, David Stratham. Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting is how meaningful his name is because his, his name is Pierce Morehouse Patchett, PMP initials, or if you look uh, at it, PIMP, mm. which is what he does. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Oh, you so, know what? Another thing I forgot to ask you was how old were you when you first saw this movie? Like, what's your background with it? Actually, I was in college when I first saw this movie. I was living in my first apartment. We had, um, of course, we had cable, so uh, it happened to be on HBO. And, oh, I thought, um, no, this actually looks good. And I, I caught it in the middle of it, which is, you know, par for the course when you're stuck, stick to it. And, um, I liked it so much that I ended up buying it on VHS. Excuse me, and let, added that to the to the list of my favorite movies. And when I eventually switched to DVD, you know that was another one of my uh, big purchases. So, oh nice. Yeah, yeah. I I did not see it in the theater, even though I was technically old enough to see it. You know, I was seventeen. You no. Know, just just right for an r-rated movie <laughs> yeah i i uh i also didn't not see it when it came out although i think i would have been well i mean 16 or something i don't know it, it, not i was still too maybe 13 but i was still maybe a little too young to see it but i uh i've seen it i think i rented it but i think it was digitally like i think it wasn't i mean it was a while ago but it wasn't like I don't know before D, before you could do it digitally. So I think that's when I first saw it. Um, I guess I got to the party late, <laughs> unless unless there's some other instance that I'm thinking of and I can't remember. But I have to say, like rewatching it, I think I I really enjoyed rewatching it. It wasn't like seeing it for the first time, but it had been a long time since I'd seen it. Oh yeah, and actually that's that's one thing that um, a mark of quality that I like to put on movies, their rewatch value. Because mm -hmm. there are there are several bad movies that I can watch over and over again, and there are several great movies that I can only watch once. But this, at the same time, is a great movie and is a... Um, you know, I, I can watch over and over again, and 
even then catch something new. Yeah. And to kind of return back to what we were talking about a minute ago, we're, I think we're kind of going through the, the uh, cast list a little bit. We've talked a little bit about uh, the fact that it stars like Guy Pierce. Um, Guy Pierce is one of those guys that I thought he was going to end up being way more famous than he actually is. Do you feel that way? Like, especially like in this film, it's like he's playing such a huge role, but I feel like he never quite took off the way other people like him did. Um, yeah, I I got that feeling too. I mean, he uh, he was Killian in Iron Man three, and that was the last that was the last thing I saw him in. But uh, most of the most of his work I've seen are just uh, you know small independent productions. Yeah, like Memento is obviously probably mm-hmm. the most famous one and probably the first time I saw him, actually. But he's he's always been around and he's been in some big movies, but he's never quite, I don't know, I used to have a theory that maybe he looked a little too much like Brad Pitt or something back then, that he just never really took off the way you would think. But I always enjoy his performance and I feel like he nails Ed Exley. Um, he's got this quality to him where that character comes across as almost creepy at times <laughs> in terms of how intense and like nerdy um he is um but is still like i don't know he just does a really good job with that character and i think it's an interesting performance yeah see what i actually liked about ed exley is he is but in the beginning of the movie he is by the book to a fault yeah um, that's yeah true. he um he goes up to his police chief, uh, uh, played uh, played excellently by James Cromwell, uh, and he says, and um, Smith asks him, "Would you evidence on a suspect you knew to be guilty in order to ensure an indictment?" And he says, "No," and and uh, Smith says, "For the love of God, don't be a detective then." <laughs> And he says, yeah. "I don't need the I need, I don't need to do this the way you did it or my father did." So he feel he feels like he needs to do the right thing and do it right. But um, in the end of the movie, he does learn to get his hands a little bit dirty. But he still has a little bit of that integrity because at the end, and uh, at the end of the movie, he's interrogated by two internal affairs officers, and they ask him, "You think you could talk your way out of this, Lieutenant?" He says, "No, but I think I can tell the truth." I think he's very optimistically by the book uh, in the beginning. I think he feels like he can change the force from the inside, and he's he's got this belief that he's going to be able to do that and be 100% open and honest. And by the end of it, I think he's a little bit more jaded and realizes that while he can try to do the right thing, um, he does have to operate within the confines of where he's at and that, yes, sometimes there are shades of gray and that that's okay. Yeah. And, um, also that kind of goes into, um, different uh, motivations is and I think that's what brings him and Bud White together because they each tell stories about how um, they lost a parent to a criminal that was never caught mm-hmm. like at Exley you just made up some name he calls him called the crook Rolo Tamashi because no who he was he just made the name to, up to give him some personality and mm-hmm. Bud talks about how his father 
uh, chained him to a radiator and uh, beat his mother to death. And, you know, um, and the, but they're both of their motivations involve wanting to catch people who think they can get away with it. Yeah. And that is something similar that happened to, uh, not Curtis, Han- uh, to James Elroy. Mm-hmm. Um, someone, um, uh, someone who was close to him was murdered in his youth and the killer was never caught. Mm. Yeah, it's got to have a lasting traumatic effect. And I think like all three main characters um, at one point in the story get sort of seduced by the celebrity or by, you know what I mean, just by the notoriety or getting ahead. And then by the end, they realize what what's most important is the truth and doing the right thing. Um, but they kind of, the movie sort of paints a picture of why it's so easy to get like caught up in things that don't, don't matter. And yeah, I, I can see what you're saying about Ed Exley. There's something refreshing about him, particularly like even in the first scene, you know, where um, some Mexican men are brought into the jail and uh there's this whole like free-for-all where it's like well they hurt a cop so we're gonna beat them all up and he's like yeah this isn't good like this is not justice this is just like you know there's no proof there's no judge there's no jury that's not what a police officer is supposed to be doing but he's learning like that is what they often do yeah and that's um that's actually what draws me to him as a character because it was you're right it was petty vengeance um the background of the they they got into a scuffle with uh some police officers and they and the police officers you know managed to go home with bruises but all the cops started exaggerating everything saying Mm -hmm. you know it's like one cop lost six pints of blood and the other one's being read his last rites so like they're trying to justify the massive beating that they're about to give them. Exactly. Yeah. They're just, and they're drunk. I mean, like there's just so many things wrong with that. And so he's kind of a refreshing character. Uh, You also already mentioned James Cromwell. It's really nice to see him in this movie. He does a great job as Dudley Smith. Um, Yes. Yes. He, he plays, he plays very, very affable character. There's that uh, point, uh, point in the movie when he just pulls out a revolver and shoots Jack Vincennes. Yes. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, because <laughs> you. A good scene. Yeah, I. Uh, it it was kind of a big wham moment, and mm-hmm. um, I mean, you like you knew from the beginning that. Dudley was a little bit dirty, but you didn't know how dirty he was because he was, uh, he was, uh, and earlier on in the movie, he was running this, I guess, muscle group where uh, it, it's Cohen getting, uh, getting arrested and sent to jail, and they are trying to make sure the power vacuum doesn't get filled. And at first, it seems like Dudley Smith is one of those cops at the end justifies the means. So mm-hmm. the actual reason he's doing that is all of those rackets. Yeah. So it's um, – James Cromwell can play a very, a very compelling villain. 
Yes, I completely and, agree. And this is that this is the same guy who said that'll do, pig. That'll do. <laughs> I know he always. I always think of Babe or the other movie. I think of his First Contact. <laughs> when I think uh, yeah, of Star Trek First Contact. Yeah, and recently he's been in a, a show on HBO called Succession. A lot he plays like a, a the brother of like the main mogul in the show. That's you know really rich but he's like rejected the family and he's like the more liberal brother um and it more mirrors kind of how he is in real life <laughs> well he actually did a very um good stint on six feet under oh okay like yeah he was um he was ruth fisher's love interest in uh i want to say the last two seasons of the show oh, okay yeah and it's it's a very it's a very interesting look into uh, yeah spoiler alert spoiler alert for that show but it's a very good look into um, mental illness. Mm, okay, I'll have to check that out. We haven't talked about there's a little bit of an elephant in the room with this movie I think because yes yes <laughs> I was I I wasn't sure if you should uh, mention this or should I but yes let's let's get this out of the way yeah so you know for listeners that may not be that may be a little younger and may have only known Kevin Spacey from House of Cards you have to understand that for a long time in the nineties he dominated movies. Um, and was beloved as an actor. So it's incredibly, you know, it's kind of awkward now when you go back and look at some films he was in um, because of who he ended up being in real life. Yeah, it's it, it's disheartening because, I mean, as terrible as he was, yeah, Kevin Smith, I mean, Ke Kevin Spacey, Kevin Spacey had some acting chops like um, he uh, and he was also, um, uh, you know, he knew how uh, he knew what was important to the story. Like, uh, he was the villain in seven, mm -hmm. which really puts that into perspective. But he told the director not to include him in the main cast list oh. because it, he thought it would be too much of a spoiler so they compensated him by giving him the very first end credit i see yeah i yeah, mean but... he was, that just speaks to how famous he was people would know right away you know yeah yeah and you know, actually it's um i'm gonna i'm gonna take a small uh detour oh, for a second for yeah there is a tv movie that exists on youtube it's it's on YouTube. I mean, you could probably find it elsewhere. I mainly found it on YouTube, where Kevin Spacey plays televangelist Jim Baker. Mm. Now, for those for those of you listeners who don't know, Jim Baker was a very big televangelist in the eighties. He um, basically you he church funds to um, uh, as his own personal piggy bank, and he had um, he had affairs. In the very first six minutes of that movie is probably the most unintentionally hilarious moment about that movie because he just had because Kevin Spacey as Jim Baker had this affair. So he goes to this church, he goes to his home church and prays for forgiveness and he's down on his oh 
oh lord jesus i'm a sinner i'm a sinner <laughs> it is it is probably one of my favorite moments in made for tv hell oh gosh uh i i as far as disgraced figures go i will still acknowledge that um whether or not i like the work mm -hmm. but i will not hesitate to say that you know that they're missed this we need them or something yeah <laughs> yeah they were they were a bad person. I will not hesitate to say that he was a bad person. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite moments in college was uh, my, uh, we were talking about um, late 19th century, late 19th, early 20th century uh, music history. And we were talking about Wagner's operas and my music history called him the world's first Nazi. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. But well, mainly because you know, Wagner was very anti-Semitic. He Ugh. wrote this huge diatribe Yuck. that uh, blames his lack of initial success in German opera on the fact that, you know, a lot of opera houses were um, owned by Jewish people. He called it Jewishness in music. It, it was it was bad. Yeah, I mean, and uh, around that time, I mean, it's honestly not that surprising you know but well, anyway, yeah. that's a whole nother discussion but that's oh yeah that's pretty that's, uh yeah that's i I, I understand that but but you know as the further we get away from it the more we don't think about that so that's interesting to know yeah and it's i think and yeah you are right people do tend to put uh um put um performers on pedestals do, to the yeah. point to, yeah i mean look no further than r kelly i mean yeah. personally i i didn't really liked his music the um i mean all of the accusations just drove drove that even further home but even so yeah i will i am very um quick i will be very quick to admit that while this person's work is great they are not good people yeah yeah but oh well i guess i mean he's got some demons in his closet of a different type but we've also got russell crowe who he mentioned actually probably is the perfect person to play bud white considering yes some of the yes antics he's been into but uh yeah also a great actor and you know i very popular around this time i don't know when it uh, beautiful was that a beautiful mind came out but i feel like it was around then oh, i want to say okay. yeah beautiful mind was only was like a few years away this was uh when russell crowe star was about just about to blow up okay yeah when was a uh, gladiator i want to say that was 2002 okay so that's, that's why off I'm the like, top of my head that he wasn't tough enough i'm like but what about that movie gladiator that's like what he's known for but maybe this is the start to that you know the, this is i would say guy. this is very much the start to that uh i remember a long time ago uh he there was some talks for him to play wolverine before hugh jackman was cast i could have seen that honestly i mean he's one of the i few definitely I could have yeah um and then we've also got, you mentioned earlier, Kim Basinger, who I feel like was so freaking famous and then kind of fell off the map. Yeah. 
There was this incident a few years prior. She was set to star in this movie called Boxing Helena. Mm -hmm. And she ended up reading the script and saw that the movie was terrible and super misogynistic. So she backed out and the studio sued her and she lost. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But then they, and they and then they ended up casting someone else. But yeah, the even without Kim Basinger, I've I've seen most of that movie and I can tell you it's a dumpster fire. Oh gosh. Well it sounds like it. But I think it also speaks to the fact that she's from a time in Hollywood where women sort of had a shelf life. You know, I feel like we're starting to finally get away from that. But I also feel yes. like, you know, when you, when I when I talk about women in movies, a lot of times I'm talking about the men with these long careers and then the women don't really have that. They're always looking for a new bombshell, a new, you know, young blonde woman um, and, uh, you know, specifically blonde at this time. But anyway, that's another discussion. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I'm glad that we're moving away from that. But I do feel like she was affected by it. And it sounds like. Her, her reputation was affected by her standing up and not wanting to be in a project. It was, it, I would say it was, but like I said, that she acted in this and did win an Oscar, but it seems that she's disappeared from the public eye. The only thing, well, uh, this was only a few years ago, and so that, that might have changed. The last thing I'm hurt. I saw her in was uh, 8 Mile. Yeah, and that was a long time ago too now. Mm-hmm. So I think she's more wanting to live a more private life. Well, that makes sense. I mean, and she's definitely, that's that's her choice. We kind of forget that, I'm sure it's a lot to put up with, you know, being in the public eye, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I think we should talk about Danny DeVito a little bit, too, uh, who plays Sid Hudgens. I kind of, I really like his character in this movie. I feel almost like, I mean, he's kind of playing a character that he plays a lot, but He's just his voice is so perfect <laughs> for this well, yeah. uh, journalist. That's it's just it's just great. Yeah, well, Danny DeVito was to me was one of those perfect castings because he he can play the right kind of sleazy. Yes. I mean, uh, it's like look at Matilda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like he's sleazy, but it's not like a Joe Pesci sleazy where it's like you know good fellas like violent sleazy or, he's just kind yeah. of sleazy but lovable <laughs> yeah he's he's a muckraker basically yeah. and also kind of um well kind of a um a accomplice to entrapment because yes. in the uh in the his introduction scene is where he said oh a friend of mine sold weed to this small time actor i'll pay you this much money um to bust him <laughs> yeah it also i think is paying uh an homage to the fact that the uh the journalist used to have like desks in the police department which is super ridiculous um which yeah. is an obvious conflict of interest now that's not what he's got going on it's at least more you know underground than that but that just kind of tells you that there's always sort of been a relationship with the police departments and the press. 
And I think in this movie, they're really highlighting there's problematic elements to it. Although Danny DeVito's character ends up being a pretty integral part of, of catching the bad guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, actually turns out, you know, Danny DeVito's character, he's, he was in on it too. And at the end, you know, he start, uh, Smith starts killing everybody who, um, who he was cooperating with so he could just seize power all by himself. Yes. So this kind of leads me into the next section. You've talked a little about the director, about some of the actors, but I want to hear some of your favorite scenes from the movie. Oh God. That's, <laughs> that is, well, I would say, um, again, it was the end where, um, okay here's here's a little bit of the setup um exley fine and bud has had a shootout with all the other uh, all the other cops yeah and uh smith says are uh, are you gonna shoot me or arrest me and you know there's no real audible answer but he you know puts his gun away and he says good man and as he walks out uh, Exley shoots him in the back, which is a callback to something uh, Smith asked him earlier. Would you be willing to shoot a hardened criminal in the back mm. in order to offset the chance that some lawyer? And this is what uh, I'm actually holding the screenplay right now. That's and so, such a good way to tie it up, too. Yeah, it says, um, here's, the, here's the stage direction. Exley's shotgun belches flame. Dudley goes down, shot in the back. Exley's answer is finally yes. <laughs> As police cars come over the hill, their flashlights illuminating Dudley's body with Exley standing over him. Exley drops the shotgun and holds his own badge over, above his head. Nice. Uh, the, and the scene in question is when he's being interrogated and he's basically laying everything out on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, first of all, it's one of my favorite, um, actor monologues, uh, from one of my favorite monologues from Guy Pierce and, uh, he lays everything out on the table and, um, the DA's watching him, the police chief's watching him comes out. They're like, oh man, what are we going to do about this? This is going to stay in the department for decades. And they say, well, you know. Who's to say what happened yeah. if we can get to, play, get to play ball? And then he's just smiling through the two-way mirror. And they uh, ask us, like, so what are you smiling about? Says, I'm just thinking about what you're going to be doing. And they, uh, everyone else is surprised except the, because they know that actually at playing angles. Like, even though, even though, you know, the corruption has been rooted. There's still some, some of it lingering, yeah. and that that's one of my favorite scenes in that whole movie. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, a couple for me. I really like uh, the introduction that we get to uh, Kim Basinger's character because I feel like it's a really, really perfect callback to a classic noir film. You know, the mm-hmm. outfit she's wearing, we see her from the back and then profile and then her introduction to white. 
Um, and then how that plays into the plot later. That's the part where she seems like she could potentially be a femme fatale later. Um, she won't be, like you said. But I like that scene because I feel like it's just shot well and it's it's interesting. Yeah, which is even more interesting because in the original uh, in the original book, Lynn Bracken is even more of a red herring. Mm. Um, there's one character who's um, who actually had a bigger part, and that was the rape victim, uh, Inez Soto. Mm. And she was actually going to, in the book, she's the, actually part of that love triangle between um, her, Exley, and uh, White. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but they, but that was that was the choice of the screenwriter. But yeah, I um, there's in the screenplay there are some stills from the movie, and yeah, here's Kim Basinger in this long black cloak with you know white trim, just um, um, hiding everything except her face. Yes. Yeah, I thought I think it's really interesting and mysterious and just reminds me a lot of when you first see the female protagonist in war films. Yeah. Uh, what's another another good scene that you like? Oh, let's see. Another good scene. Um, wow, that's I know it's hard. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it's like in uh I'll, I let's just say one of the interrogation scenes where um, there are these three black kids who are suspected of shooting up the coffee shop. Uh, turns out they didn't do it, but they did do something else. Mm-hmm. That like they basically kidnapped that uh, kidnapped that one Mexican. But um, also, uh, I I just like how he's grilling all of them and um he he leaves one of the one of those guys and he turns around and says you know i'm talking about the gas chamber and you haven't even asked me what this is about yeah you've got a great big guilt sign wrapped around your neck yeah and all the all the of, of the all the rooms all the cops in that room start to have a little bit more respect for him because they see him as at first they see him as his brown nose but um it shows uh, actually kind of a master interrogator yeah well i think it's like um there's a lot of um you know kind of toxic masculinity stuff going on in the department right like they they want him to not even wear his glasses like not even indicate mm-hmm. it, it's all about appearance you know he they they want him to throw out his glasses because that will make him look quote unquote weak but it's like where he isn't physically strong he's mentally strong so he's a good detective and you know he's kind of proving a point that being a de- detective isn't just about brute strength and even the interrogation or intimidation is not always about brute strength so he's kind of um you know establishing that among the force by yeah using his wits to get a confession yeah which actually um leads me to bud's character Mm -hmm. and um his overall arc because he's been thought of as being the brute strength guy and you can tell he's starting to get tired of that label yeah but he has a more um and you 
throughout later on throughout the movie you see um he has some detective skills too because when he is identifying a body there his um his mind kind of flashes back to earlier because so uh to where he recognizes someone mm-hmm. um and i thought that was a very good um uh trick among the film a technique among the filmmakers uh to do that and uh he he actually is he actually can be a very competent detective if they gave him a chance but you know um you know it's the 1950s and everybody has to stick to their roles right i also feel that smith manipulates the three main detectives by using their ego against them um to cover his tracks you know he sort of stokes the jealousy that uh guy pierce's character has towards russell crowe's character um you know he wanted him at one point russell crowe to kill him by you know manipulating uh (laughs) guy pierce into like being seduced by uh, kim basinger's character like everything he does is sort of moving chess pieces in the background to get to use their strengths against them and like another or, or like and so white you know he's often used as the muscle throughout the film and people sort of downplay his intelligence he may he's the perfect person for smith to send in to beat people up or potentially kill them um and do what he wants all he has to do is sort of stoke his rage yeah and it really comes together when um they bring uh when exley and uh white start working together which is another uh, of my favorite scenes oh, yeah. sp- that one exchange that says where uh white says why are you doing this the night owl made you you want to tear all that down and exley replies with a wrecking ball you want to help me swing it yeah yeah it's a good a good. good moment of growth for both characters they've both been squaring off this whole movie then they have this love triangle with a girl which when i said when i said nods to something kind of creepy earlier i feel like guy pierce is so intense in the scene with kim basinger where he comes on to her and and it, i think he's kind of acting a little bit because i i remember reading somewhere um that Exley kind of had a crush on Veronica Lake. Oh, I like that. Oh, and and I think he's playing the character perfectly. Like, but I just think it's mm. like it's so intense. And but there's also this undercurrent that I felt like in that scene where I'm like, I almost feel like he's got this energy towards White where he like, I don't know, hates him so much he loves him kind of thing too. So there, I just feel like there are a lot of oh, yes. to that. But I was like. <laughs> At some points, I'm like, when is he going to kiss him? Because I feel like there's some tension here that they're not really talking about. But anyway, that was just in a more modern take. I think they might have explored that. But I, I noticed that in, in some of the scenes with them. Uh, they're just intense. But, <laughs> yeah. What uh, the, One of the scenes that I like is basically when they're working together and they realize the DA's been blackmailed. Yes. And and then oh my gosh that's a great scene (laughs) they realize yeah they realize you know um it's like they're they're kind of acting um acting a role in working together the whole good cop bad cop thing yes and what gets me is like uh, white is just wailing the 
crap out of the DA. And he says, I know you think you're the A number one hotshot, but here's the juice. If I take you out, 10 more lawyers will take your place tomorrow. They just won't come on the bus, that's all. Yeah, because he had made that really uncool comment about, you know, there's another one uh, that'll come on the bus or whatever. It was, yeah, it was really yeah. derogatory. And so he throws that back in his face, like, okay, they won't be on the bus, but that still doesn't mean you matter that much. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, and I like the fact that it kind of takes that, um, uh, takes that DA down a couple pegs yes. because it's in well, the reason that uh, they were investigating because there was a that actor who was busted for uh, having pot in, earlier on in the movie, he was set up to seduce the DA because uh, you know the DA's pretty much deep in the closet as are like almost ninety to ninety nine percent of gay men in the fifties. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, that's another interesting thing about uh Kevin Spacey's character, uh Vicenis, is he he recognizes that, you know, how messed up that is. Like it's not just okay for these sex workers um to get killed or for people to be humiliated. Uh, or, or over people being humiliated you know uh, a lot yeah. of powerful men don't want people to know that they're with these sex workers and then that can cause sex workers to go missing and in the case of the young actor um, they were trying to set him set up the da but they didn't realize the fact that he wanted to protect his reputation so much he would kill him and he's like nobody deserves that which is like a really compassionate thing for a you know straight guy in the fifties to acknowledge. So they, they yeah, want to was... pay back what he did. And so, yeah. Yeah. I, I do like that part. And he says, yeah, there's a case your guys in homicide don't care about. They think it's just another Hollywood homicide. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and because it does highlight the fact that that happens a lot. I mean, I would even argue um, to this day uh, where certain cases are elevated depending on who who the victim is and if you're truly passionate about justice and finding the truth you wouldn't be elevating certain cases above others but treating every you know missing person like they, like they matter yeah a absolutely which goes back to my um love of 1950s deconstruction mm -hmm. because of, of course obviously back in the 50s this was i mean i guess in in behind the scenes it was something of a public secret yeah but now um but it really didn't get out to you know john in you know uh marshall texas or whatever yeah 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 but i i agree i i like that aspect of this movie yeah and it's also because uh, it goes back to what Sid Hutchins said in the very start, in the opening narration. They're selling an image. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, when it comes to 50s nostalgia, the image is really what they, uh, is what people idolize. Uh, yes. Because um, most of them actually were either children back in the 50s and um I say most nostalgia from that time really comes from the fact that, you know, 
comes from the fact that you were living in a time when you really didn't have to worry about paying bills. Yeah. And also, I think it was right after World War II, and a lot of media representation is very overly um, cheerful. And like, there's lots of musicals and stuff because people were like, you know, they'd been through a lot and they kind of wanted to see some lightness. And I think the further we get away from the 50s, we start to mistake what we see in Hollywood for what was actually happening. Um, and this exactly. movie is examining like, okay, yes, on TV, it seemed like everything was great or whatever. But in reality, like people don't change necessarily. Like the, there were social problems then um, and probably even more social problems than, than now. But um, you know, yeah. they were present, ever present. Yeah. Even in, even in states like California, I mean, California wasn't one of the big Jim Crow states, but you know, the racism definitely was there. Yeah. And I think this movie does a good job the... to show how subtle it can be and how intertwined with, I mean, may not be a popular thing to say among some people, but uh, how intertwined with the, uh, the PD it was. Yeah, yeah, which, um, which is another elephant in the room we kind of need to address because yeah, the, I mean, police corruption hasn't gone away. Right. I mean, sometimes one of my favorite moments is that, uh, in real life is goes back to two years ago, uh, when there's this moment where people were calling the calling city hall they were doing a zoom meeting and people were just calling them and just berating the um police because they were gassing um they were gassing uh peaceful protesters because this was during the george floyd protests yeah. of two years ago um uh, they were gassing police protesters they were shooting them with rubber bullets they were arresting uh they were arresting the press, you know, while they were being filmed. I mean, um, there's a, there was a moment where a CNN reporter uh, was being arrested in, uh, I want to say it was Milwaukee. I don't, <laughs> yeah, if, if anyone's watching and I get, I got the city, uh, city wrong, uh, just don't, don't be too hard on me, but there's a CNN reporter who was arrested on air while he was reporting by the police. Uh, by the police, which really shows to yes, this this is police corruption is still actually a thing. Yeah, and and being more concerned about press than they are about justice, you know, because if you're literally arresting the press, you know, it's like yeah. we're just reporting what's happening. It's like come on, but yeah, I think this movie has like several pivotal pivotal scenes where they're sort of addressing that, but they're not like coming right out and saying it it's just sort of in the background a little bit like with um white's uh former partner who you know he later finds out is is killed for specific reasons for being involved with things but i think he saw him as like you know a partner that he really cared about and liked but you know we get a little foreshadowing in the beginning with the way he his partner rushes in to like beat up the um mexican uh you know uh people that have been arrested um yeah so it's like yeah, you got that exactly. and, and, and white doesn't really necessarily rush in to beat them up but 
he does it because he's defending his partner and then later he's like he comes to realization like okay he was my partner and i felt like i really knew him and i overlooked some stuff but now i really see who that guy actually was you know yes Um, yes and then i think like you said there's that interrogation scene with the the three um younger well actually the biggest scene i think where there's like a kind of a highlight is whenever guy pierce shoots that guy in the elevator and he later finds out he wasn't the right person Um, that's like a case of getting really emotional in the moment going after somebody because of a perception and then killing them and then later realizing that that he was mistaken you can't just run around i mean you should not run around uh, in being an executioner because you need, there needs to be rules in place. And he actually broke his own yeah. rules in that moment, kind of chasing glory. You know, he wanted to be the one that, that took care of that. Person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And even he, when um, later on in the movie, he kind of realizes that uh, the police chief was behind it. It says, yeah, the, the chief framed them because they, well, they still, they use the old school term Negroes. Yeah. Like they, they framed them because they were Negroes and they had records and he knew there'd be no questions asked if they were killed resisting arrest. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not really subtle, subtle in the film, but I yeah. think it's like, it's still kind of woven in, in such a way where you don't, it's not the main forefront of the film, but Again, they're no. commenting on several different aspects of corruption around that time. And like you said, unfortunately, I think there's still some things that have not changed today. But Oh, makes... definitely not. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I did notice that a lot this time. I think I probably noticed that aspect even more because of the last few years. But um, yeah, that was a good scene too. Um, and, and also the victim that was like, oh, no one would have cared because she was Mexican. And so... She went along yeah. telling a lie because she wanted some semblance of justice. Yeah, there, there's, there is a lot of that. Yeah, there's a lot of layers. I feel like, um, and yeah, and uh, also, you know, but White's own sense of justice involves base, uh, uh, you know, punish like beating up on you know women beaters. So I mean, you don't feel bad because you know they're beating up on women, and then you find out that his main motivation and it kind of comes down to uh, retroactive revenge. Yes. And, but also I think what's interesting is the movie touches on how there's a cyclical nature to that in some aspects, because later when he gets really angry at his girlfriend, he goes and hits her. And I think in that moment he realizes, you know, he's, he's seen himself as this hero for using violence to sort of, enact revenge but then in this moment it comes back to haunt him because that's his go-to way to deal with things and then he's almost becoming his father in that moment yeah uh he he has he has officially become what he hates yeah which i think is like wow i don't think i've ever seen a movie explore it that way so i i thought this time i was like wow even that's like kind of progressive for (laughs) this movie yeah Let's see. Actually, there is another point that the screenplay makes. Uh, Let me see. Okay, here we go. Uh, 
that this was the yeah it was lynn the um veronica lake uh sex worker he says Bud backhands her hard. Lynn faces straight into the next when his butt hits her again. The third time takes her down as the sins of the father are visited on the son. Bud stops short as the self-realization slams home. She doesn't start crying till Bud turns away and runs away into the rain. Yes, and I feel like the rain, especially when he walked in and it was raining, I felt like, I don't know, like they were hiding his tears or like an example of how he's feeling in the moment, you know, how sometimes the weather is used to, mm-hmm. to kind of portray that. I thought that was really a good choice too, but yeah, he runs away and you notice like he doesn't go back to apologize to her. He kind of has like a sort of to kind of make up for what he did. He kind of has, uh, you know, um, Guy Pierce's character do that. Yeah. Like he's yeah. kind kind of like a full circle moment of like, acknowledging that uh he was not the bad guy and um even though what he did was bad i think part of him trying to make peace was like okay i'm gonna send specifically the guy that i was upset that you were with to go talk to you because i feel like he's the better person to talk to you right now based on what i did at exley yeah some i i would say um I would I would agree with you on that aspect. Um, I think I don't think he sent him. Well, I, I, yeah, he says um, subtly. Yeah, you go talk to her because. But yeah, he's like he's, I'm gonna go do what I do, beat people up. <laughs> like I'm better at yeah. that. <laughs> but he, yeah, he is in a bit of self-loathing because again, he has become that which he hates. Yeah, and I think it it kind of. It's interesting, too, because it's easy to just sort of see his dad from only one angle as um, somebody that abused his mother and killed her, but that he got there somehow, right? So it's like he's seeing that, like, he could potentially go down this exact same path. It doesn't start out that way. It ends up that way. And I think it makes a good point about how, like, with violence, it's not like I think our society sort of acts like there's good and bad violence, but I feel like the film is sort of saying like there's there's really not. I mean, if your if your go to solution is violence, it, it ends up being a bad thing because it will continue to be your solution. Yeah, it's um, I I'm a believer that violence can be used for good, but this is very much one of those when all you have is a hamp hammer yes, kind of situation. Yeah, well, were there other big scenes from this film that we haven't discussed that yet that you wanted to touch on? I pretty much um uh I think I pretty much mentioned all my favorite scenes uh in this and um and really um just reading the screenplay and how um I, I don't I, have you ever read screenplays before? I own a couple screenplays, but if I'm honest, I don't think I've ever sat down and read through all of them. Yeah, well, a lot of the, a lot of what they write on this page, um, some often doesn't really make it into the finished film. But what gets me about this screenplay is that a lot of what um, they kept a lot of uh, what was written, which is you know kind of a sort of a minor miracle in and of itself like this the entire story it, it 
itself is pretty strong. And eventually, um, I'm going to read James Elroy's original book, but I got so many other books that I need to get through right now. Oh, man, now. we all have so many we have to get through, so I, I totally understand. Yeah. Um. Well, I guess that brings me to my last couple of questions. So I always kind of wrap up with, with two two big questions. Uh, one is going to feel a little redundant. You've spent this whole time explaining to me why you love this movie, but if you could summarize it, why do you love this movie so much? Why have you seen it so many it, times? It's a strong story that is well acted, not just well acted, masterfully acted. Like every, every single person who was on that movie from directors to screenwriters to cast to, um, production design everyone in there showed up came to play gave 110 percent, and left every shred of it on the field which is um now why i you know hope this is one of those movies that will uh, stand the test of time yes and if you had to pitch this to someone that has never seen the movie before what would you tell them about it hmm This is a detective story set in the real 1950s, not the fake 1950s that you see in those old school noir films. That's true. There's definitely more social issues that are dealt with in this film than in a traditional noir film because it is made in the 90s versus being made in the 50s. So it's Yeah, it's, in the 50s you had the Hayes Code. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like I I, I agree with you. That's a really good way to sell it. Um I um, have always been a fan of detective stories. I've always been a fan of like true crime as well. Um, and I think this is a great film that um, is on a lot of lists. I mean, it's on your top 10, right? <laughs> and I think it's on a lot mm -hmm. of lists for good reason, because it is one of the better, um, more modern. Although now I guess people would think of it as retro <laughs> uh, noir well, films, yeah. but it, it's a good one and, and shouldn't be overlooked. And it's also funny because um, there's another one of my favorites that's kind of on my list because of um, de Deconstruction of 50s Nostalgia, and that's Pleasantville. Oh, I love that movie. A, a friend recently reached out to me. He actually just reminded me I need to reach out to her. She wanted to talk about that film, so we should we should do that one pretty soon. I, I love that movie. I would. I love that movie, too. Put, <laughs> get me in on that. <laughs> Because that's another movie I will talk on and on and on about. Oh my gosh, yes. Well, speaking of that, um, we do have to have you back. So um, thank you so much for coming on. Nick, where can people find you? Well, right now you can find me on Twitter. Uh, again, my handle is Mr. Afro one the number one, and it's all one word together. And also I'm part of the Video Store Rejects group. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, right now we're doing a uh, series which is a retrospective of the movies of 1982 because all those movies have reached their um, 40th anniversary. And 1982 was a landmark year for science fiction and fantasy. I mean, we talked about uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. We talked about E.T. We talked about Poltergeist. Um, I believe Tron and Beastmaster will uh, be next on our list. And also we'll eventually talk about Blade Runner because, nice. yeah, you want to talk about noir movies. That's 
that is very that is a futuristic noir yeah it's probably one of my favorite films ever um but yes go listen to that show and thank you nick so much i hope to have you back soon i hope to be back soon it's really great to have you thank you very much lisa